the water nymph Rusalka sacrifices her voice in order to become human and pursue a life with the prince. But is the prince's love strong enough to survive her irreversible silence? I'm Kyle Homewood. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we explore Dvorak's haunting fairy tale, Rusalka. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Dvorak's masterpiece, Rusalka, has returned to the Met this season in a new, fantastical production by Mary Zimmerman. My co-host, Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera, recently gave a pre-performance talk exploring the folklore sources behind the opera's plot, as well as the musical fabric that brings this story to life. So welcome everybody and thank you so much for joining us here at the Guild on this somewhat mild winter day to spend some time talking about a wonderful work, Dvorak's Rusalka. My first encounter with our composer was actually at a pretty young age, probably six or eight years old, studying Suzuki violin and I was learning Dvorak's humoresque and my teacher gave me the assignment one week of writing out a story to accompany the music that I was learning so that I would put more emotion and soul into my expression of the piece. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar with humoresque, this is what it sounds like. The story I ended up writing at the ripe old age of six or eight was first of all Mickey Mouse is walking along a path and then when the music gets really schmaltzy that's when he sees Minnie and he falls instantly madly in love with her. Now moving on from humoresque my next real introduction or foray into Dvorak's work came in conservatory when I learned all about the New World Symphony. 
The New World Symphony, as soon as I heard this work, I really did become obsessed with it because it is amazing. And movement two is really the movement that everybody seems to know, even if you don't know that you know it. So you'll recognize the melody. It sounds like this. And even though Movement 2 is the most popular, I am a really big fan of Movements 1 and 4, so I thought we would listen to just a little bit of Movement 1, because I think it captures a lot of the energy and kind of striking orchestration that Dvorak becomes known for. Symphony, the next thing that I came across was the song To the Moon from Rusalka, the big act one aria, and I encountered it in the same way that most people first encounter anything from this particular opera, and that is in a recital or concert setting, and I immediately became intrigued by the music. It was so beautiful, and I remember thinking to myself, how it seemed like the voice just floated over top of an orchestra, the same way that a swan just glides over top of a lake. The style seemed to be, at the time to me, like a hybrid of the impressionistic music of Debussy with little hints of Wagnerian and late Romantic harmonies. And I would later learn that both allusions or impressions are a major part of the musical landscape that Dvorak was a part of, so I wasn't too far off. And in many ways, Dvorak had one foot in the 19th century and one foot in the 20th century. So he really straddles two major eras in the grand scheme of music history. The more I learned about the opera, the more I listened to it, the more I fell in love with it, to the point where it is now easily within my top 10 favorite operatic works. There's so much to talk about, and given that we have a fabulous new production to discuss, in the rest of our time together, we're going to try and cover as much in the following topics as possible. 
First, we're going to little, learn a little bit more about Dvorak and the opera's world premiere. We're going to talk about how Rusalka falls into a larger scope of opera history, specifically in relationship to Czech opera history. We're going to take a look at some of the source material behind the opera's story. We are often told that this is the Little Mermaid opera, but there's quite a bit more to that. And we'll talk about its connection with mythological characters from Czech and Slavic folklore. We're going to look at some of the elements of the new production so that you really know what to look for when you're in the house tonight, as it really is a fantastic new take on the work. And in that, we're going to try and touch on some interpretive questions and issues that directors, designers consider when they're bringing this work to the stage. And we're going to end our discussion with looking at some of the compositional elements of the work, a plot synopsis, and touching on some musical highlights for you to listen for. So let's begin by getting to know our composer a little bit better. Antonin Leopold Dvorak was born in what is now present-day Czech Republic, just outside of Prague, in 1841. His life and compositional output overlaps with many cornerstone composers of the operatic repertoire in the second half of the 19th century, and then crossing into the 20th century. So the likes of Giuseppe Verdi, Richard Wagner, Charles Gounod, Richard Strauss, Leos Janacek, Bella Bartok, Arnold Schoenberg, Puccini, Tchaikovsky, and all the members of the Russian Five or the Mighty Handful are all people that Dvorak would have been aware of, would have listened to, would have come in contact either with them in person or their works. He is considered one of the most important composers and popular composers in the development of a Czech national style, and he was influenced very heavily by the father of the Czech national movement in music, Bedrick Smetna. He started taking organ, violin, and piano lessons, and also music theory lessons at a fairly young age, and he showed a lot of musical promise, and so around the age of 16, his teachers convinced his parents to let him pursue more study at a formal conservatory. And so he leaves home to do this, and he studies primarily in German, as was the custom of the time. And when he failed to get a job as an organist when he graduated from conservatory, he began playing viola in a local orchestra in Prague in order to make ends meet. In 1863, he played in a concert that was a full program of Wagner, and it was conducted by Wagner himself. And so this left a very lasting impression on Dvorak, and he went through this phase from that point where he became kind of momentarily obsessed with the musical ideas of Wagner, and he really was dedicated to composing in the vein of this Wagnerian style. Later on, he would go on to kind of grow beyond this obsession, and he would develop more of his own style and still have Wagnerian techniques, but fuse it with other ideas. But it is something that you can see in his music as an influence from a very early stage in his development. He continued hobbling together a musical career by performing and teaching, and then he was kind of composing on the side, but really performing and teaching was his bread and butter. And so in his kind of side hobby composing, he ended up submitting a work to a major composition competition in in and around Prague, and Brahms and Hanslick were on the judging committee for this particular competition. 
And Dvorak's entry caught their attention, and both men approached Dvorak and said, you really need to keep composing, and you should really dedicate as much time as you can to this, because there's something about your music that people are going to take up and sit up and notice. So Brahms got him connected with his publisher. He also helped Dvorak get one of his first major commissions. The now very famous Slavonic Dances for orchestra came out of that. And so after that, a major success of Slavonic Dances, other projects and engagements and commissions started rolling in. And Dvorak slowly gained notoriety and fame both inside Czech-speaking lands and also kind of across Europe. From 1892 to 95, he spent time here in New York City as a director of the New York Philhar or National Conservatory of Music, sorry. And it was here that he wrote the New World Symphony, which was a commission from the New York Philharmonic. In this symphony, he was determined to capture the musical flavor of the New World. And capturing a nationalistic sound through music is a concept that he was very passionate about. And he tried to do this in composing in his own native land with his own culture long before he came to the US. And then after, again, when he returned to Czechoslovakia or the Czech areas of Bohemia, Moravia, he continued this interest in capturing a national style. So scholars describe his style in general as the fullest recreation of a national idiom with that of the symphonic tradition absorbing folk influences and finding effective ways of using them. And so we're going to hear some of these folk elements and influences in his work because when you look at this connection of folk tradition and also folk culture in Czech and Slavic uh, folklore, there is also both mythological characters, which we're going to find in our opera, and also a strong connection to nature. And we're going to see that in this work tonight. So as for Rusalka, the opera, it came around in 1901 is when it made its premiere in Prague. And this wasn't the first opera that Dvorak wrote. He had actually been dabbling in the operatic genre as early as 1870. And he really believed that opera, because of its dramatic and narrative elements, made it a really good place to pursue this kind of national musical idiom. And although he wrote many operas before Rusalka and many operas afterwards, this one is by far and away his most major hit. It was an instant success when it made its world premiere, and it's his most popular stage work in the operatic canon today. However, it did not make its Met premiere until November 11th, 1993. And so people often ask, why so slow a trajectory to get to the Met? We'll touch on that in a minute, but one of the reasons why it came to the Met in 1993 was because we had the amazing Gabriela Benatskova engaged to sing Rusalka. So the story of Rusalka we've talked about is this mixture of the Little Mermaid and Czech mythology, so we're going to touch on that. But first, a little bit of historical context, and we won't spend too much time here because we could talk about this for another half an hour before looking at the plot. So when we talk about Czech national music or the sound of Czech music, we're really talking about Bohemia and Moravia, which were the two main provinces at this time. 
kind of sandwiched between Germany, Poland, Austria, and Slovakia. And in a nutshell, if you look at history as a long timeline, from about 1526, which is before opera as an art form even existed in any way, shape, or form, up until around after 1780, the Habsburgs, which were an Austrian-German empire, really controlled the whole area of Bohemia and Moravia. German was the language taught in schools, it was used in government, there was a strong effort by the Habsburgs to suppress uh, Czech culture and the Czech language generally, especially in the 1700s. And so because of this, once opera comes about as an art form and once it gains a lot of traction in Europe, the type of opera that's making its way to this part of Europe really is importing the most popular German and Italian composers at that time period. We do have evidence that there is amateur Czech opera happening like in schools and street fairs and that type of thing at this time, but nothing being produced on major stages or funded by the state and the government in any possible way. After the death of Joseph II, that's when we have, who was a big leader of the Habsburg Empire, that's when we have this major Czech national revival where people in this part of the world are trying to establish a kind of national identity. And part of that comes about in 1883 musically with the establishment of the Czech National Theatre. And then this is when we start seeing a proliferation of operas that are in Czech trying to establish this musical style. And they are in Czech language by Czech composers from this area. So we have works such as uh, The Tinker by Frantisek Skrup, which is heralded as the first Czech opera produced in a major way. That's in 1825. Then we have The Bartered Bride by Smetana, which some of us may know because it is part of the canon today. And then we have the next major hit is Rusalka in 1901, major hit being you know, making waves outside of this part of the country and, and traveling a little bit across Europe. And then we have Janacek's Janufa or Janufa, produced in 1904. And then from this point onward, we encounter the question, well, if these are such great operas and such major hits, why didn't they make it to the Met earlier? or to the United States earlier. And so we have some major world events that disrupt uh, kind of the spread of arts and culture at this time, World War I. Interestingly, I looked this up uh, this morning, Yenifa made its world premiere in 1924. So between World War I and World War II, its US premiere. Then we have the Iron Curtain that goes up, and so this significantly prohibits uh, the traveling of singers who can actually sing in Czech, and so this is one contributing factor to it. And then Rusalka makes its US premiere in 1975 in San Diego, and then comes to the Met in 1993. So I was asked on Saturday, well, why did Yenifa travel faster to the US than Rusalka? And although I don't have any research on this, I haven't gone and kind of found a theory out there, but my own hypothesis is that, as we're going to see in here, Rusalka is strongly associated with a romantic style and Wagnerian ideas. It has a little element of impressionism from Debussy, that kind of style, but really, to me, it's more strongly connected with the 19th century. And Yenifa is much more strongly connected 
to the 20th century and trends of expressionism at this time period in the first decade. So if you think of 1900 to 1910, at that time, that's when you have works like Zalame, Elektra, uh, Evartung, and uh, Bartok's uh, Bluebeard's Castle, other works like that that are really tapping into this kind of pushing of chromaticism to the ultimate brink, dabbling in atonality a little bit later, you get to Wozzeck. And so the harmonic language that people are interested in and what is most trendy is not Wagnerian leitmotifs at this point in time, it's works like Yenefa, Zalame, Electra. So that's my personal theory, although I'm sure other people have more theories about why it took so long for it to come to the Met and come to the US generally. Now, if we look at the source material, since it's based on The Little Mermaid, we do have a connection to German folklore and fairy tales. And so if you know the Brothers Grimm, this is kind of the main uh, duo that starts this interest in folklore and fairy tales in Germany in the early 1800s. And so they are very popular and certainly the sources that are connected with them and the types of tales that they were telling were part of the influence and the choice behind this particular subject matter. But really, the authors that are really important are Carl Erben and Bojena Nemkova, two Czech authors that were trying in this nationalist movement to perpetuate stories connected with Czech folk culture, and so drafted and created these anthologies of Czech tales and folklore much more strongly connected to Slavic areas of the world and kind of separating themselves from the German fairy tale tradition. And so the librettist for Rusalka was really drawing upon elements from a variety of stories that can be found in Erben and Nemkova's collection and kind of fusing them with some elements of German fairy tales. Our librettist is Jaroslav Kvapil, and he said in some of his writings that there is much of the Czech folk element in my fairy tale, and in the spirit and form, I have tried to follow the unsurpassable example set by our ballads. My fairy tale is much closer to Erben, to his Lili, his Vodnik, and the golden spinning wheel than to many foreign models. It is perhaps this very characteristic of my work that led the great master of the arts, Dvorak, to choose it. And so he's really fusing these two things together, the fairy tales of the German tradition and his Slavic sources. So it's helpful for us to see some of these characters that he mentions, the Vodnik, and also some characters from the Golden Spinning Wheel and Lili that tap into a larger tradition. So if we look at Czech mythological characters that you're going to encounter tonight in the opera, the first one, and probably my favorite one in the work, sung by Jamie Barton tonight, is Yeshi Baba. So this is a character that in many, many different folk traditions from the Slavic area of the world is also known as Baba Yaga. And depending on the region that you are reading the folktale from, it depends kind of area to area geographically what she is described as. Usually she is deformed, very ferocious looking, almost always an elderly woman, dwelling deep in a forest in a hut. Often the hut has a fence of skulls surrounding it. It's sometimes suspended on chicken legs. And she is known to both help and hinder those who seek her out for help. 
And so in a way she plays a kind of maternal role that can go really good or go really bad. We also have Vodnik characters, uh, sung by Eric Owens in our production today. And this is a supernatural being that is also known as a water spirit or as a Wassermann in German folk tales and fairy tales. And the Vodnik in Czech folklore are a little bit different than the East Slavic conception of them. So you find quite a difference between different uh, trajectories of stories and cultures. And so there are a few things that are very common to both though. One of them is the Vodniks often have gills or webbed membranes between their fingers and toes, much like a fish or a frog. They have a kind of algae-like green skin, again, kind of an allusion to a frog. And typically, we their skin is a kind of pale green tone. Their overall dress and appearance is sometimes described as being like a vagrant or a hobo or a, a kind of a forest creature. Uh, known to wear odd shirts and odd hats. They can withstand being out of the water for short periods of times for a couple of hours, but usually they are bound to a, wa to a water area in some way. And so if they're out of the water too long, then they suffer and possibly perish. So when they are out of the water, you can always tell that it's a mythological creature and one of these Vodnik because they're always wet in some way, usually dripping or have some kind of water element to them. Their face is usually unshaven. Oftentimes they have a very long beard and they, like Yeshi Baba or Baba Yaga, can help or hinder those that seek them out for help. And sometimes in some mythologies, they're known to drown people that happen to wander too far into their territory in the water. And interestingly, the Vodnik are a completely freshwater mythological character. They never appear in the ocean in these fairy tale genres. Similarly, Rusalkas don't really appear in saltwater either. In other folk and fairy tales, we have sirens, right, that lure sailors to their deaths. But the equivalent of a mermaid-like creature in Czech and Slavic mythology tends to be also tied very strictly to fresh water. And so a rusalka can take many forms in mythology. Sometimes they are described as a ghost, sometimes a water nymph, sometimes a mermaid, sometimes a demon. It really depends. And the lakes and freshwater ponds that they dwell in are called tunkas. And tunkas tend to be rather small but very, very deep. In the middle of the night, they can walk out onto the bank near the pond and they can dance in the meadow. On a full moon, they can climb trees and you can hear them sing. But they are known for luring uh, men to their deaths through their singing and also luring people to their death by drowning them in the water, similar to the Vodnik. And again, the specific characteristics of Rusalkas differ from region to region, but it's common across all versions that her primary dwelling place is the water, that she can't really walk out amongst the mortal world without some kind of special situation like a full moon or nighttime and that type of thing. So there's actually a lake that you can go to in the Czech Republic. It's called Rusalka's Small Lake, and this is a picture of it. That little stone on the bottom right there is a plaque about this particular place because it is said that 
Dvorak spent his summers in this area outside of Prague and over the holidays he would go wandering for long walks in the woods and he wrote quite a bit of music while he was there and it is said that Dvorak was sitting at this little lake and he actually saw a Rusalka come out out of the water in front of him and that was what inspired him to write the opera. And so if you're traveling in and around Prague, then you should definitely make this stop so that you can also go and sit where Dvorak's at and maybe a Rusalka will visit you there as well. So let's look at our new production elements because a lot of these concepts that we've talked about will come together in elements of the new production. So for every new production that the Met does these days, they always publish a YouTube video or a, a general video online where they interview the directors and designers and singers and introducing us to the concepts that they are exploring both visually and musically throughout the work. So we're going to watch the video that they released for Rusalka where it interviews Mary Zimmerman and she will be our jumping off point for further discussion of her design concept throughout the work. Rusalka is a wonderful opera for a director because you get to imagine a world that may be connected to this world but also has the opportunity to be a world that's never really been, that's fantastical and self-contained unto its own where the clothes aren't quite clothes that anyone has ever quite worn and that it's imaginative. It's an imaginative opera. It's not realism. It's not naturalism. What Rusalka is about is a water spirit or sprite, which the Czech term for such a creature is the Rusalka. And she is in love with a prince that she's seen from below the waves who does not see her but senses or feels her. And in order to complete this love, she goes to Yejibaba, a witch, to gain the ability to walk and breathe and be among mortals and experience this mortal love, but at the cost of being able to speak. If it stands for anything, to me it stands for an idea that if you have to undergo a radical transformation of yourself for a love that you feel you want to complete, it's probably likely that that love will not lead to a good place because you've gone away from your own nature in order to become visible. For some reason, the fairy tale world to me is a as a 18th century world, an imaginative world all to its own, with its own aesthetic and its own logic. In the first scene, we're in a, a sort of painted room or painted series of portals with a large natural tree in the middle of it and a, a bit of the pond below in a sort of abstracted form. And when we go to the palace, but it's in the opposite color, it's red, saturated red. And I wanted that palace to be both alluring and attractive and saturated with the feeling of romance and with love, but to also be somewhat oppressive and a little menacing and a place where she is not at home. My costume designer, Mary Blumenfeld, and I have worked together a very long time. For Rusalka, we had the idea that her garment should trail into actual water lilies. She speaks about being tangled in them. And we wanted the dress to be, honestly, although beautiful and graceful, a little cumbersome for her, a little difficult to walk. And one of the things that I very much wanted to underscore was the 
extreme nature of the journey that Rusalka goes on, sort of bodily transformation and metamorphoses. When you're in love at first, the whole world is luminescent and so vivid and beautiful. And then when something goes wrong, it feels grayed out and used up and as though your love was perhaps an illusion. I'm very excited about working with Christine. She seems very um, game to me, and I love that. I love a, a singer who's game and physically adept and imaginative, graceful, emotional, all of that. So to give you a close-up of some of the images that kind of flash by in this little vignette video, this is an image of Yeshi Baba in her costume design, and the prince, as you see here, this is his costume design in Act 2, and so this is not the first time you see him. You do meet him in Act 1, and he enters in a kind of uh, over-the-top hunting garb with a hat and a bow and arrow and that sort of thing, but then when he comes in in Act 2, the dark, saturated colors of him are very important in him being a part of this human world, that Rusalka finds herself in, and Rusalka stands out quite a bit. We also have Rusalka's dress, which is mentioned, and so this is a close-up of some of the design where you can see this water lily skirt that's supposed to make her one with the water. And so there's a great little video that they published in kind of preparation for the HD broadcast where you get a close-up in the costume shop of this particular costume, and also they talk about the wood nymph costumes at the very beginning, which were one of my favorite costumes in the production when I saw it on opening night. So this is Eileen Perez interviewing the head of the costume shop and Mara Blumenfeld, who was the costume designer. And you can see some of these things up close and personal and they describe their thought process behind them. Joining me now is Mara Blumenfeld, the costume designer for the new production of Rusalka, and Elisa Iberti, the head of the Mets costume shop. Hello, ladies. Hi, Hi how are welcome. You? It's so good to see you. Mara, Rusalka takes place in a fantastical world of wood sprites, witches, and other unusual creatures. Rusalka, the main character played by Christina Opalais, whom we just heard, is a water nymph who forfeits immortality for the love of a human prince. Tell us about her dress of lily pads that she first appears in. Well, what you're seeing our very talented artisans working on is her first costume, which is um, evocative of the idea of her being literally the water. Mm -hmm. In a lot of versions of Rusalka, she's often depicted as a mermaid. But what Mary Zimmerman, our stage director, was really interested in was her physically embodying the water itself. And so oh, this long fabrics. gown, yeah. Yeah, I could see the sheen is different on each Yeah, feet. it's really beautiful. And it's all different silks and uh, organza. And then we've had these beautiful custom-made silk lily flowers and lily pads. And the idea is that when we see her uh, appear in the tree, that this dress cascades down the whole root structure of the tree, and we see her. Her connection, sort of connection to the water. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Elisa, it's the job of your team to execute Mara's designs. How challenging has this production of Rosalka been for your group? It's been challenging. It's been exciting. Um, and it's also, we love to do fantasy. Mm. We don't get to do it that often. So it's sort of a process of discovery. Mm -hmm. um, so this dress has gone from uh, a very basic prototype to what you see right now. And on Monday, we will actually see it on stage. What 
Mara, please <laughs> tell us who we have here. So these are, um, for those who know the story of Rusalka, when she goes to Yeji Baba the witch mm -hmm. um, to ask to be made human, uh, Yeji Baba often has these sort of minions or familiars with her. And so our idea in this production is that they are all uh, characters, people who would have worked in the palace, who are Yeji Baba's sort of failed experiments at transformation. <laughs> and so they're sort of half human, half animal. Mm. And what you're seeing is two of them, and one is a crow or a raven, and one is a rat. I noticed the detail. Mm -hmm. Are you sensitive to singers wearing them then? And, and, and uh, Yes, designed? well, these, these are actually being performed by uh, some of our dancers. So they don't have to sing, but they do have to be able to see where uh -huh. they're going. Okay. <laughs> and so you'll see that we've done very sort of clever um, panels where the performers can see see and also breathe. Um, and these were made by one of our makers in Chicago, a really talented Yay, artist. Chicago. So, yes, <laughs> yay, Chicago. Um, one of our very talented artisans named Elizabeth. Oh, well, so. I understand this is the costume for one of Ruselka's wood nymph sinsters. Mara, tell us about this design and, and the little creatures in the headdress. So this is, we have our uh, ensemble of female dancers, um, Austin McCormick, who's our choreographer, does a lot of Baroque dance that's fused with a kind of modern sensibility. Um, mm. And we were interested in the idea of them, again, in the way that Rusalka embodies the water, they physically embody the woods and the twigs and oh, the flowers. It's extraordinary, and I'm in awe of the creativity, the craftsmanships, and your vision. We're really excited to see Rusalka on February 25th. So as we dive into the music of Rusalka and a kind of plot synopsis and highlights, I wanted to touch on some interpretive things that are going to come out in the score and also that have been brought up already in some of the discussions and uh, pictures that you've seen. So the first thing is that Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote The Uses of Enchantment, The Meaning and Importance of Fairy Tales, wrote quite a bit about different things that you can draw out of the story and interpretive issues and kind of hidden psychological or embedded psychological things to consider when you are talking about these tales. And so I picked out a few things of his that I think are particularly uh, effective or connected to this production and to this opera. And so one of them is that he talks about the witch of the abyss representing a kind of grotesque sexuality, so that's Yeshi Baba, and also set up to be the complete opposite of a naive or innocent girl in search of spiritual transcendence. And related to that, there is this constant interest in the mermaid or Rusalka's character in transcending one's identity for metamorphosis, for transformation, and he talks about how this is kind of symbolic for uh, moving from childhood to womanhood and the transition between the two. And then he also talks about the mermaid's relationship to the prince. And this is the one I think is most interesting to consider as you're watching the opera itself, is that although there is a romance and a love at first sight, there's also this element of exotic companionship where he kind of views the Rusalka or the mermaid as a pet. And this a pet that he can use and discard or is looking for a certain thing from this particular person or being and when she doesn't fulfill this function gets discarded and so this carries a lot of kind of subliminal messaging about the role of women in society and that how she is viewed by the prince and by others around her 
So then in the music, a lot of these contrasts are also brought out. And so we have things like the human versus the supernatural world sound very different musically in the score. When she's in the forest versus when she's in the palace, you're going to hear a difference. We also have a difference between the Rusalka and the foreign princess. And I have to say, watch for that foreign princess's costume. It is amazing when she comes onto the scene in act two. But as far as if you were just to compare the two vocal parts side by side, there's a marked difference between them. There's a lot that has been written about the foreign princess, although Dvorak never overtly said this, he uses a lot of rhythms that are associated with Polish music, like mazurkas and polonaises and that sort of thing. And so there's some people hypothesize that she is supposed to be from Poland, even though nothing is overtly said in that regard. There's also a difference between carefree and very emotionally laden dialogue throughout the opera itself. And then we have a whole host of transformational leitmotifs throughout the work. And so this is a musical theme or a motive that reoccurs and is connected with a character or an idea or a thing in the opera. But what Dvorak does is he changes them very subtly every time they come back and that tells us something about the story and what's happening. And so I think this is supremely important in Act Two when Rusalka can't sing, she can't speak or communicate with the prince. And so the orchestra is supposed to be telling her thoughts and feelings and her side of the story. And so all of these transformations in the motifs come back again and again. So to demonstrate this, we're going to start with the prelude because there's many motifs throughout the whole opera. But what I've done is the prelude's uh, about 10 minutes long, but I've spliced it down to about three minutes. And I've labeled the leitmotifs as we go through each part. And I kind of cut together uh, different parts of it. And towards the end of this clip, you'll notice that there are three motifs happening at the same time. And so when that comes up, I've labeled the instruments so that you can listen for the motifs in each instrument because it shows you how you get introduced to them one by one, and then he puts them all together. This is from the 2014 HD broadcast with Yannick conducting. This is the Vodenik's motif. This is Rusalka's motif. This is the prince's motif. This is the enchanted forest motif or the water motif in the piccolo, the vodnik motif in the violins, and Rusalka's motif in the basses.
So from there, that leads us into Act 1. So the curtain is going to open on a beautiful enchanting forest with a small lake or water-like area in the middle. We have our beautiful tree that you saw, and there are wood nymphs running around and teasing the Vodnik or the water gnome. And in this particular scene, we're immediately launched into the kind of folkloric element of Dvorak's score. And so it really sounds like a rustic dance that's happening. From there, we get into Rusalka's entrance, where she has a scene where the harp kind of brings her in and she climbs up over the root structure of the tree. And at first, she's talking to the Vodnik and she says, I've seen this this person, this man, I fall in love with him, but he can't see me, and so I want to become human in order to pursue a life with him. And the Vodnik says, I can't help you, you're going to have to seek the help of Yeshi Baba because she has black magic that will do that. And so from there, we have the Song to the Moon, which is the big aria that everybody knows, and this is what brings us into kind of Rusalka's sound world. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this, and this is from the production, so you'll see something that looks just like this tonight, and this is Christine Opelias singing this particular moment. So from here, Rusalka decides to seek out Yeshi Baba's help, and Yeshi Baba agrees to make Rusalka a human if she gives up what she calls her transparent water veil, the part of her that links her to the mystical realm, and also gives up the use of her voice in the mortal realm. So 
even though other mythological characters can still communicate and speak with Rusalka, she can still talk to the Vodnik, she can't actually be heard by any human, and so she appears mute to all humans that encounter her. So this scene when she goes to seek out Yeshi Baba is one of my favorite parts of the opera. It's really fantastic. And towards the end of it is when you have uh, what, what we call the double, double toil and trouble scene where she's actually mixing the potion, Yeshi Baba. And so in Czech, it's called Kuri Muri Fuk, which translates to abracadabra in the subtitles. And this is where I think Jamie Barton completely shines in the opera. And this is a still image of them. And this moment right here is when Rusalka is signing a contract with Yeshi Baba. But following this, she goes behind a screen and there's some kind of shadow play to show them, you know, operating on her, so to speak. And then she gets ushered off stage and Yeshi Baba goes through with making this potion. So this is just a short clip of Jamie Barton singing Kuri Muri Fuk so you can get a sense of what you're in for in a much more extended scene tonight. Rusalka appears in human form and who stumbles upon her but the prince and this is a photo of the old production with Pyotr Bekchawa and Renee Fleming and this of course we have the prince's motif just ushering in this whole scene it's really romantic and beautiful but also for us watching very frustrating because Rusalka cannot speak she can't express herself and the prince says things to her like are you mute and you can't speak? Are you just a creature who's here one day and is going to disappear the next? 
And he essentially says, I don't really know how long you're going to last, but I'm bringing you home with me. And he picks her up and literally just walks off stage with her, waltzes back to his castle. And she goes willingly, of course, but you can see how this is kind of a recipe for disaster. From there, when we get into Act 2, this is when we see the realm of the humans, which looks so visually different and sounds different in our production. And so everything is very red. This is where we see the prince's dark, saturated colors. And if you notice in this, Rusalka, her costume in this production, is designed to make her look like she does not belong. So everything else around her is these dark reds and burnt oranges and gold and black. And then she's in this like icy blue white number with a white wig. And the prince says things to her like, you're so cold, your, your blood runs cold, why won't you speak to me? And he's growing very frustrated because he wants a certain thing from Rusalka, verbal affirmation of her affection, and it's the one thing that she can't give him. And so he sings this little number. This clip is about one minute long to show you the music of the prince and him pondering what might be the problem between him and his new soon-to-be bride. Now throughout this whole act, this is where we really hear the orchestra portraying Rusalka's inner thoughts and inner desires and the prince just not being able to hear the orchestra or understand what is going on with her. And so of course we have, with the foreign princess's arrival, a woman who can give him what he wants, this verbal affirmation and display of affection. And again, she is designed to stand out as being the polar opposite to Rusalka. And so he ends up essentially cheating on Rusalka and he's found kissing the foreign princess. And what happens is Rusalka knows that something is wrong with the prince, that he's not understanding her and he's growing more and more frustrated and she fears losing his love. And so the Vodnik senses this and he appears to her and he says, Rusalka, you cannot give up because if you give up, then you will be cursed forever. You are never allowed to return to the mystical world because that's the deal you made with Yeshi Baba. And if you don't win the prince's love, then you will be doomed to be in this kind of purgatory between the two forever. And so he's trying to encourage her, you know, do everything you can to win the prince's love. But then as he's doing this, the prince is off on the balcony having a little tete-a-tete with the foreign princess. And so the Vodnik ends up kind of coming to Rusalka's defense because catching them red-handed in the act and saying, you know, you have betrayed Rusalka. I'm bringing her back with me. She can no longer be here. And so then 
the prince at this point kind of turns to the foreign princess as if to say, well, at least we can be together. And she says, forget you. You're involved in all kinds of witchcraft. I'm, I'm taken off. And so he is left devastated at the end of the act because he's lost both the woman he's lusting after and the woman that he thought was his forever love, his bride. So this brings us to act three. And of course, throughout this whole scene, it's a little bit hard to see in this picture. This is from the old production. Again, he uses all of this visual imagery in the libretto, you know, Rusalka, you're icy and cold, and your blood, uh, it doesn't feel like you're real, you're going to disappear at any time, you're ghost-like. And then with the foreign princess, you know, you're warm, you light me on fire, all of this type of hot and cold metaphoric language. And so someone once asked me, does Rusalka, is she actually a cold-blooded creature? And I said, I don't know if she's a cold-blooded creature or not technically in folklore, but it really is talking about this, or trying to set up this metaphor of fire and water, cold and hot, that type of thing. So in Act 3, when it opens, we're back in the Enchanted Forest where Rusalka is seeking the help of Yeshi Baba once again. And in our production, we see that the world of Act 1, Rusalka, where we first met her, has returned, but it's in complete shambles a metaphor for how her entire life has kind of imploded upon itself and everything is destroyed from what she thought it would be. And so she goes to Yeshi Baba and Yeshi Baba says to her that the only way to reverse the curse now that she has lost the love of the prince is to kill him with a magic dagger. She refuses, she throws the dagger into the lake and then Yeshi Baba condemns Rusalka to being a spirit of death living in the depths of the lake, emerging only to lure other humans to their death, a fate that Rusalka claims she would rather endure instead of uh, killing her most beloved prince. Despite everything he's done to her, she still loves him and can't let go of that. So the gamekeeper and the kitchen boy, which we actually meet briefly in Act 2, they also are in the woods wandering around seeking out the help of Yeshi Baba because they believe that the prince has uh, been betrayed and cursed by Rusalka, and they're seeking her help. And then the Vodnik appears, he sets them straight, revealing what actually happened between Rusalka and the prince, and sends them on their merry way. And they, he talks about how the prince is now suffering the consequences of his unfaithfulness. So the prince then wanders onto the stage, deliriously looking for Rusalka. He goes to the lake where he first met her, and there's this long extended scene that concludes the opera where Rusalka appears to him in a very spirit-like fashion. And because she's no longer in the realm of humans and connected to the realm of humans, she can finally speak to him and he can hear her. And so she asks him why he betrayed her. He begs her forgiveness, he begs her to kiss him, but, and he says he will be forever faithful, but Rusalka says, if I kiss you, if you kiss me, then it is a kiss of death. It will condemn you to death and damnation. And he begs for the kiss anyway, saying that he would rather die in peace and having made peace with her, knowing that he had one true kiss and one true moment of love, than live forever without her. Sie, Alice, Jeste, Spaß, Spaß. Oh, Mutter, Schöne, Mädel, Ach, Blau, 
Alpha then has to prepare to go back to the depths of the lake, and we hear the Vodnik sing, all sacrifices are futile, but Rusalka disagrees with him, and she thanks the prince for letting her experience human love, and then commends his soul to God before returning to the depths of the lake as a demon. And in the final scene, writers talk about how Dvorak really strived to maximize the cathartic tone of the piece through music and through not ending it on such a tragic note. So even though, while Rusalka might have some very dark undertones and some deep interpretive issues, I think that the depths of love and longing and sacrifice expressed in the work are really very vivid and very captivating, and that's why we go back to this opera again and again. And perhaps it acts as a cautionary tale, as Mary Zimmerman said, about how if you have to dramatically change yourself for love to become someone you're not, then maybe pursuing that love will not lead to good things. However, I would add that through Dvorak's music, we also see how it's possible for that love to be very deep and very true and very good intentioned and something we can learn from despite all of our human failings. Thank you all very, very much. That was Naomi Baratera talking about Dvorak's Rusalka. The opera is currently on the stage at the Met with a live in HD broadcast coming to theaters across the globe on February 25, 2017. It features a wonderful cast, including Christine Opelais, Brandon Jovanovich, Katerina Delaiman, Eric Owens, and Jamie Barton. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit metopera.org. Until next time, I'm Kyle Homewood, and thanks for listening.